Section 25 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 6, Part 5. On 10th of January, we returned to Olmütz. No one any longer doubted about the outbreak of war. I had heard a few individuals in Vienna hope that the Schleswig-Holstein dispute could even yet be capable of diplomatic settlement. But in the military circles of our garrison town, all possibility of peace was held to be out of the question. Among the officers and their wives, there prevailed an excited, but on the whole, joyfully excited temper. Opportunities for distinction and advancement were in prospect, for the satisfaction of the love of adventure in one, the ambition of another, the first for promotion of a third. This is a famous war which is in prospect, said the colonel, to whose house, with several other officers and their wives, we were invited to dinner. A famous war, and one that must be immensely popular. No danger to our territory, and even the population of our country will suffer no diminution, since the scene of war lies on foreign soil. What inspires me in the matter, said a young first lieutenant, is the noble motive to defend the rights of our brethren under oppression. The fact that the Prussians are marching with us, or rather we with them, assures us in the first place of victory, and in the next place it will bind still closer the bonds of nationality, the national idea. I had rather you would not talk about that, interposed the colonel rather sternly, that Hamburg does not sit well on an Austrian. It was that that raised up the Italian war against us, for it was on this hobby horse, Italy for the Italians, that Louis Napoleon kept always mounting, and the whole principle especially unsuitable for Austria. Bohemians, Hungarians, Germans, Croats. Where's the bond of nationality? We know one principle only which unites us, and that is the loyal love of our reigning family. Therefore, what ought to put spirit into us when we take the field is not the circumstance that we are Germans and have Germans as allies, but that we can render loyal service to our exhorted and beloved commander-in-chief, the emperor's health. I stood up to drink the toast. A spark of animation even reached my heart, inflaming it for a moment and filling it with a warmth that did me good. That thousands should love one and the same cause, one and the same person, is a thing which produces a peculiar, a thousandfold impulse of devotion. And that is the feeling which swells the heart under the name of loyalty, patriotism, or esprit de corps. It is in reality nothing but love, and this has such a mighty working that the man regards the work of hatred ordained in its name, even the most horrible work of the deadliest hatred, war. 
as the fulfillment of the duty of his love. But this glow only lasted in my heart for one instant, for a love stronger than that for any earthly fatherland or father of the country filled its depths, the love of my husband. His life was to me in all cases the dearest of my possessions, and if it was to be the stake, I could do nothing but abhor the game whether it was to be played for Schleswig-Holstein or Japan. The time which now followed I passed in unspeakable anxiety. On 16th of January the powers of the Bund addressed a demand to Denmark calling on her to abrogate a certain law against which the convocation of estates and the nobles of Holstein had invoked the protection of the Bund and to do this in 24 hours. Denmark refused. Who would consent to be commanded in that fashion? This refusal had been foreseen, of course, for Austrian and Prussian troops stood ready posted on the frontier, and on 1st of February they crossed the Eider. So the bloody die was cast again. The game had begun. This gave occasion to my father to send us a letter of congratulation. We choice, my children, he wrote. Now we have at length an opportunity to repair the losses we got in 59 by inflicting losses on the Danes. When we have come back from the north as conquerors, we shall be able to turn our faces southwards again. The Prussians will remain our constant allies, and in that case these shabby Italians and their intriguing Louis Napoleon cannot again stand up against us. Frederick's regiment, to the great disappointment of the colonel and the corps of officers, was not dispatched to the frontier. This fact brought us a paternal letter of condolence. I am heartily sorry that Tilling has the ill luck to be serving in just one of the regiments which are not called on to open the campaign which has such glorious prospects, but there remains always the possibility that he will be marked out to follow in support. Martha, indeed, will look on the best side of the business and be glad that the fear for her beloved husband is spared her. And Frederick also is confessedly no friend of war, but I think he is only against it in principle. That is to say, he would rather on grounds of so-called humanity, that it should never come to fighting, but when it has so come, then he would, I know, rather have a part in it, for then I know his manly love of battle would awake. In truth, it ought to be the whole army that should always be sent to meet the foe. At such a time, to be forced to stay at home is surely something altogether too hard on a soldier. Does it strike you as hard, my Frederick, to remain with me? I asked after reading the letter. He pressed me to his heart. The damp reply contented me. But what was the good of it? My peace was gone. The order to march might come any day. If the unhappy war could only be brought to an end quickly... With the greatest eagerness did I read in the newspapers the news from the seat of war 
and warmly did I wish that their allies might win speedy and decisive victories. I confess that the wish had no patriotism at all in it. I should indeed have preferred that the victory should be on our side, but what I hoped from it was the termination of the war before my all on earth was out there, and then only in the second degree the triumph of my countrymen, and quite in the last the sea-surrounded patch of country. Whether, however, Schleswig was to belong to Denmark, or no, what in the world could that matter to me? And finally, what matter could it make to the Danes and Schleswig-Holsteiners themselves? Could not then the true nations themselves see that it was only the rulers who were quarreling about the possession of territory and power, and that in the present case, for example, the question was not the good or the suffering, but the wishes of the so-called Prince Protocol and of the Augustenburgs. If a number of dogs are fighting over some bones, it is still only the dogs themselves who tear each other. But in a history of nations, it is chiefly the poor silly bones themselves that rush at each other and knock each other to pieces on the two sides in fighting for the rights of the combatants who covet them. Lion warns me, or Tausa has a claim on me. I protest against Carol's fangs, or I reckon it an honor to be swallowed by Growler, cry the bones. Denmark up to the Eider, shouted the Danish patriots. We will have Frederick of Augustenburg for our duke, shouted the loyalists of Holstein. The articles in our papers and the talk of our quitnungs were all of course permeated by the principle that the cause for which we had entered into the war was the right one, the only one which was historically developed, the only one necessary for the maintenance of the balance of power in Europe. And of course, the opposite principle was maintained with equal emphasis in the leading articles and in the political speeches in Copenhagen. Why not on both sides weigh the rival claims in order to come to an understanding? And, if this should fail, make a third power arbitrator? Why go on, always shouting on both sides, I, I am in the right, and even shouting it out against one's own conviction till one has shouted oneself hoarse and finishes by leaving the decision to force? Is not that savagery? And even should the third power mix in the strife, it also does so, not with a balancing of rights or a judicial sentence, but equally, with downright blows. And that is what people call foreign politics. Foreign and domestic savagery it is, statesmen like tomfoolery, international barbarism. End of section 25